On May the 31st, 2009, a scheduled passenger flight took off from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, headed towards Paris, France. The flight would enter a stall and the pilots would be unable to recover from it, resulting in a plane crashing into the Atlantic Ocean. This tragic event resulted in the loss of all 228 passengers and crew on board, making it the deadliest aviation accident in Air France's history. This is the story of Air France 447 crash. I would like to use this opportunity of a mic check to let my hair dry and also to thank 7-Elevens, the US 7-Elevens, let's be specific, for their service, okay? I have been to a couple of 7-Elevens in Europe, I think it was Germany, I don't really know what country has 7-Elevens here. This is one thing that the UK needs, all right? All right, Subway, mm-mm, away McDonald's, why, why do we need it? Fuck that franchise, okay? 7-Elevens, though, the two-liter lemonade, like, where, where else can you get it? A hot dog, Jolly Ranchers, Jolly Ranchers, okay? If you need somebody to shut the fuck up, put a Jolly Rancher in their mouth, immediately they look jollier, okay? That's, that's the whole purpose of it. Like, you can find anything. You can find anything. They don't know what bath bombs are, by the way, in um, a lot of places in the US, uh, including 7-Elevens. Uh, they probably thought I was going to, like, I don't know, organize a terrorist. I was like, what the hell? It's, it's just called a bath bomb. I know it's a stupid freaking thing. It should just be called a bath bowl or some shit. But it's not, okay? Um, that was a sideline. So anyway, 7-Elevens. If you want me to sponsor you for whatever reason, because I'm based in the UK, does it make sense? Does it have to make sense, though? I have taken maybe a couple of pictures of me, like as in somebody else had taken them. There's at least 20 pictures of me romanticizing 7-Elevens, no joke, inside, outside, from different angles. Oh, I made it sexy. I even used a different app. It wasn't just a camera app. Mm -mm. I went into Huji to like make it look like all ancient because it's not used enough in movies and series. Why? Why are there no Hallmark movies, love stories, rom-coms based in 7-Elevens? Your girl might have the script one. I just, I don't know what to tell you. You do not appreciate your convenience stores enough, okay? If you were to come to the UK and go to what we call a boss man, right? For the off-license store, just, I don't know, buy, yes, no, you don't even have Jolly Ranchers, okay? You just buy like Ferrero or like Kinder or whatever and buy a beer or a cider. Like that costs money. <laughs> Lemons are not for free. It costs money in the US as well. It's just not a great experience, okay? First of all, we call them boss men. We treat them like we are roadmen, like we, we're born on these streets. It's just the exchange is not as pleasant. They don't have hot dogs there. They don't have insane amounts of like everything. Donuts, freaking two liter Cokes, two liter coffees, the insane packagings of everything. They don't have it. You don't get the experience. You enter a phone number and you get a free muffin. What, who does that? America. Because you know how to live that sugar life, okay? Point of story. Moral of the story. Appreciate your convenience stores, Americans, and please, at least give us something good, okay? Why would I need Subway? Healthy bread. I'll go to Tesco's and buy it, okay? <laughs> oh, the story I have ahead of us is grim, so um, I had to go off tangent here a bit and calm my own soul before we dive into one of the greenest insane cases ever. Cool, let's go. Detective unit, I don't know what possessed me to look into plane disappearance, but I'm just gonna say it will probably haunt me. This decision is going to haunt me for the rest of my life, because this topic is so grim. I cannot describe to you how 
researching it. I had goosebumps during reading so many articles. Like, 90% of this research, I was shaking. I had goosebumps, because I think, like, everybody here who has ever been on a flight can relate to so many feelings, right? Like, when it's overhaul flight, how do you make yourself comfortable on a plane? How do you get yourself to fall asleep? The turbulences happen. Like, your first thought is, I'm not making out this plane alive. I'm not making it out alive. It's just so triggering on so many levels. So I just have to start this one with a trigger warning. If you are sensitive to mass deaths, if you are sensitive to just flying on a plane, really, like there's so many of my friends that will not watch this video because they just will not be able to like handle it. They are sensitive to the matter and I am myself. I thought I will cover three cases of plane crashes and disappearances of the planes. I think it's going to be this one and Malaysian Airlines because there's a documentary on Netflix now. There's a lot more material there so I can make that into a two-parter probably. And that's going to be it. I thought I can handle three cases. I don't think I can. I don't think the next case on this channel is going to be a true crime case. So, um, that being said, and trigger warning out of the way, um, I have myself been recently on a long, like, overhaul flight, overnight, again, in a very similar position to the people that we are going to be talking about today. So the way that I thought would be the best to tell you this story that isn't super technical is I will split it in three parts. So we will go through the points of view of the passengers where they were at the point of taking this flight just to sort of present it in a way where you can picture it, where, you know, like they would board the plane what kind of plane they were boarding, like, where they were in that point of life, like, who is missing them, who is missing their loved ones from the families that have been fighting for justice for them throughout the years. Then we're gonna go into the point of view of the crew, so what was going on at the cockpit, and the days prior to the flight for the crew and the pilots, especially their flight hours, their experience, and obviously then the whole accident, everything that was going on in the cockpit on the night of. And then later I will try to tell you about the investigation and the conclusion of this case and the trial that took place last year through the point of view of the families. And obviously, in order for me, who have never covered a case of a plane disappearance before, who is not a pilot, who does not have any such experience, I had to do so many side googs here, so many sideline searches, insane amount of sideline searches, probably the most I have ever done in my life. The best, the best source here. There's a coverage of 60 Minutes, I think the Australian TV show that I will be playing throughout this video, but the best thing. Like, if you want to leave this video right now and watch his video, I would, I would have no beef. Like, that would make complete sense. Is the YouTube guy, he's a pilot, and the account is called Mentor Pilot. If you want to get everything about how this plane operated, I can never, A, reach his editing skills. Like, he made me shake because his editing skills are so good. Like, you felt like you were within the cockpit. And also, just if you want to understand like, the further details through the pilot's eyes. Like, I'm not gonna lie, at some points it was a lot more technical, but I have a feeling without that video I would not have grasped 
or be able to tell you the story in terms of the point of view of the crew in the cabin, like what was actually going on inside of that cockpit that he has because of the black boxes that we're going to be talking about later. So give that guy a subscribe, at least give him a follow. He has so many videos on these crashes, I will probably have to watch him again when researching the next case. It's insane. It's insane how good he is and how detailed he actually is in his descriptions. And his editing skills are just... It's just genuinely, like, the best video that I have seen. Like, it's better produced than Netflix documentaries. So, that out of the way, let us start off with a story. And we are going into the point of view of the passengers that are going to be boarding that plane. I can't paint you a story of the lives of all of the victims, but as I managed to find articles on some, I will try my best to shed light on the point of where they were in their life when they took this flight. All of the sources will agree that this flight had crazy amount of notable passengers. Smart, hard-working, from composers, doctors, and professors, to families on holiday, and actual royalty. There were three Irish women on this plane. All three of them would graduate from Trinity College Dublin's medical school, and they were returning from their holiday to Brazil. These were Dr. Ashling Butler, who was 26 years old, Dr. Jane Deasy, who was her friend, uh, who was 27 and from Dublin, and then Dr. Etna Walls, who was 28 years old. Ashling had been working at a hospital in Dublin, and she was very determined to become a consultant and just progress in her career. Her dad, John Butler, says that she was accomplishing her goals one by one. But unfortunately, she chose to return home instead of pursuing a career in Australia. And this is what led her to be on this damning flight. John Butler described his daughter as highly intelligent, driven, and dedicated to medicine, while Jane Deasy, who also would lose her life in this crash, was her very best friend. Winfred Schmidt was another father, who would later travel to Paris from his native Germany to see the trial, once it comes to that, in 2022, so about 13 years after this crash. And he would do this because he lost his daughter, Julia, who was also on the flight with her fiancé, Alex Crollo. Now, a family friend would say that this couple were on their way to see the fiancé, so Alex's parents, to share the good news about their engagement. Among the flight crew was its head, and Grimaud, and she was from a small town with a medieval castle. This town is called Hermenoville, and it's actually such a short commute from the airport, Charles de Gaulle Airport, where the flight was supposed to land, that it's nicknamed Air France Village. And it's nicknamed this because of the amount of residents from this town who work for the airline. And was one of them. She was 49 years old and had worked for Air France for nearly 25 years. She had actually convinced two other council members to join her on a long weekend trip to Brazil. This would be Marie-José Trelot, who was 70, a mother and a grandmother, and Natalie Moroig, who was 41 years old, who had children in the local schools and worked at Proclaimed Hydraulics in a nearby town. This is something that you get a lot when it comes to this case, especially with the articles available in English. But because of the nature of the event, relatives at the homes of some of the victims would decline to be interviewed, because just everybody thinks it's just not possible, it's, it's too tragic to even say anything 
about the accident, about their loved ones being in this position, because none of them had deserved this, none of them had expected this. This truly could have been avoided and should have never happened. The town where Anne is from is holding an annual theater festival, at least was back then, near 2009, and they turned this festival into a celebration because they wanted to provide a memorial for the women once the accident had happened. Anne will not be the only one dying in this accident. All 12 members of this crew will die during the crash, along with 216 passengers. Among the passengers on the plane were Graham Gardner, who was a 52-year-old oil industry worker from Renfrewshire in Scotland. And then there would be Arthur Coakley, who was a 61-year-old engineer from Whitby in North Yorkshire. Graham had been working in Brazil for four years, and he was recently promoted in the underwater construction company that was headquartered in Aberdeen. His wife described him as a caring and affectionate man who loved spending time with children in their extended family. Arthur, on the other hand, was a structural engineer, and this oil company was also based in Aberdeen. He had been helping with a survey on an oil rig in Brazil, so he was there on a work trip. His wife, of 34 years, said he had been looking forward to retiring and buying a property in Corfu in Greece. He leaves behind two sons and a daughter who were all devastated by his sudden passing. So you know how I said that there was actual royalty on this plane? This was one of the Brazilian passengers, and his name was Pedro Luis de Orleans Ebraganza. He was a direct descendant of Dom Pedro II, who was the last emperor of Brazil. And he was one of the 58 Brazilians on board of the plane. Although the monarchy was overthrown in 1889 and Brazil became a republic, Prince Pedro would have been fourth in line to the Brazilian throne if the monarchy was still to have existed. The other Brazilians identified included Antonio Guerros, an information systems director at the French tire company Michelin, and Lucas Galliano, a 23-year-old flight attendant on the plane. Michelin actually lost three executives, including two senior Brazilian managers and Christine Pierrards, a young French engineer. When it comes to the Italians on the plane, there was, from the newspaper articles that I have seen, some sort of a raffle. So, a newspaper reported that 10 people, including 9 salesmen and an executive from an electrical materials distributor based in France, and their spouses won a four-day vacation to Brazil and were on the plane because of that. Like, imagine winning a trip, winning a holiday, and this is what happens on, on your return home. It's truly just devastating on so, so many levels. One of the Italians on board, a former mayor in the Trentino region, was one of the three officials in a humanitarian delegation to Brazil that was inaugurating a swimming pool for children with disabilities. Then there was a couple that you will hear about in the 60 Minutes coverage on this case, Caroline and Sebastian, Caroline's mom described them as Romeo and Juliet because they met on a plane and they would die on a plane together. Most of French, like Caroline Sulas and her husband, Air France flight attendant Sebastian Vedavati. They've just had three days off together in Rio. Sebastian and Caroline, it's like Romeo and Juliet. 
because they have met in a plane and they got married two years after. Just before boarding flight 447, Caroline sends a text message to her mother, Corinne. The last SMS she sent was saying, it's a, too, it's a pity to come back to France. It's so sunny here. It was a Sunday in the evening. So I knew that she was in the plane. There were two Americans on the plane, a geologist called Michael Harris, who was 60 years old, who was living in Brazil and was originally from Greenville, South Carolina, and his wife, Anne Harris, a 54-year-old woman from Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, Michael was known as Butch, and he had been working with the International Division of Devon Energy in Houston until, actually, last year, so just a year before this, when he and his wife moved to Rio to work in a small office there. They were flying to Paris for a vacation before Michael was scheduled to attend another training seminar for his work in Spain. They were described as being full of life and that they would take every opportunity that was handed to them. There will be those lucky enough to escape the accident. So this story circulated uh, days after everything was found out, people found out that this was a crash. There were two people that really desperately wanted to return to France for work, like they had to appear in the office, it was different times, right? Like you had to work from the office. And unfortunately, the whole plane, like the flight was fully booked. And I think people still do this today, where they're ready with a passport, with the luggage, they come to the airport, right? And they're just like, well, if somebody doesn't appear, if we can cancel their ticket or whatever, and you can book us in. However, even though they actually contacted people at the embassy, like their friends, Air France refused to let them on. And these guys would later say they both felt lucky and horrified at how close they came to death. Most heartbreakingly, however, there were eight children on board of this flight, including Alexander Bureau, who was 11 years old, and he was a boarder at Bristol's Clifton College. He was returning to the UK after visiting his family in Brazil for the half-term break. And that is so... Like, everything about this is so heartbreaking. But, like, to be a child on a plane, flying for the first time, I don't know, like... This hit just different, because it's close to home, it's close to the UK. However, also, it's just like the excitement that you get, like I still get excited going on planes, but the excitement I got when I was in my early teenage years and flying on a plane for the very first time, like the excitement that you get, like you can pull an all-nighter, you can do whatever, you can watch TV, like it's a long-haul flight. You can literally do whatever on this flight, like your parents are not there to monitor you, it's like a whole different experience, like the excitement that you feel. And then to never just appear before your family again, it's just heartbreaking on so many levels when you find out there was so many children on this flight that lost their lives for truly nothing. The headmaster here said that Alexander joined the prep school in January 2009, that he was well-liked and respected boarder who will be missed by his fellow pupils and staff. The college governor also then, because obviously here, if something like this happens, the school has to announce it and they have to like offer counseling and everything like that. I mean, I think that is standard everywhere, really. Um, so the college governor said that it was a somber mood at the school once this was announced, that all the children were informed and that the prayers were said. 
that is a terrible piece of news to break. Children are intelligent, they understand what has happened. All we can do is offer them support in an appropriate way. Let me take a breather, because there is another family that, where I have found some information where another child has tragically died on the plane. They were the Swedish victims, and because all four of them, so like both the parents and the two kids, were scared of flying, they were scared of crashes in particular, what they used to do, and I think this was a regular occurrence from what I have read, would separate. So on this flight, there was a 30-year-old Christine Butter, and then her 5-year-old son, Philip. And the mom would purposely travel on a separate flight to her husband and their three-year-old daughter because of their shared fear of air crashes. Now, the husband and their daughter caught an earlier flight and would land safely in Paris, where they were informed that the second plane, which had taken off only a few hours later, was missing. To think that there was another plane that day, just everything here hits, hits so incredibly hard. The family had been living in Rio for 10 years and was returning to Sweden for a holiday. Mrs. Schnabi's mom had said it's impossible to comprehend that they're gone. It's awful. In total, the airline would offer a tally of victims, including two Americans, an Argentine, an Austrian, a Belgian, 58 Brazilians, five Britons, a Canadian, nine Chinese, a Croatian, a Dane, a Dutch citizen, an Estonian, a Filipino, 61 French citizens, a Gambian, 26 Germans, 4 Hungarians, 3 Irish, an Icelander, 10 Italians, 5 Lebanese, 2 Moroccans, 3 Norwegians, 2 Poles, a Romanian, a Russian, 3 Slovakians, 2 Spaniards, a Swede, 6 Swiss, and a Turk. Still, from the point of view of the passengers, where now you know a bit of their lives, or at least like where they were, at the point of coming to this airport and boarding this flight, we're gonna go into very few details that we know about the flight that they were about to take and just sort of like their time boarding this flight. So the flight details here, the flight was supposed to take off at 10.30 on the 31st of May and land at 9 a.m. on the 1st of June. I am talking Paris time, so universal time zone, just because it's easier. The pilot guy also talks it like people who cover this case talk about it from that perspective, so like 10 p.m. onwards. And they were supposed to go from the Rio airport to Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris. Most sources will state that the flight would take or was supposed to take 11 hours and 15 minutes, and that's for the passengers. We're going to be talking about the crew, because obviously their shift starts earlier and ends later. So that's like cool, the whole different thing. You're going to learn so many terms here. From what I have seen also, the crew was on the plane uh, since 8 p.m., just as the passengers were at the airport waiting at their gate. No issues were reported with boarding, everybody is being placed in their seats and presumably going to settle for the night and sleep. For around three hours, this flight would have been peaceful and with no turbulences whatsoever. Then, for about half an hour, the passengers will be experiencing some turbulences and then the accident was going to happen. Although we will never know what the 216 passengers got up to when they sat down in their seats, I truly hope all of the passengers were safely asleep 
and did not feel anything that is about to happen. With the passengers safely in their seat, we are going into the point of view of the crew members. As I mentioned, there will be 12 of them on this flight, and three of those will be in the cockpit. They will be the ones manning the plane. I will, from this point on, use the last names, because if you were to look up any transcripts, they would be in French, but they have been translated since in English, and there's some coverages on this case where they recreate them. And those transcripts would use their last names, so that is what I will be doing in this case. So, the flight crew would consist of the person with the most experience being a 58-year-old Captain Mark Dubois. He was a veteran pilot with nearly 11,000 hours of experience. Then, we're going to the least experienced person, a 32-year-old first officer, Pierre Bonin. Now, he only had about 2,000 hours and had actually recently come up through Air France's in-house training program. However, he will be the person in charge of flying this plane, and he will be the first officer on the flight. Then we have a relief first officer, whose last name was Robert. And he is there, from what I have read, simply because of the length of the flight. So, Robert was 37 years old, and he is there to fill in during the middle of the flight in order for the most experienced pilot, Captain Dubois, to take a legally mandated rest. Robert had also learned to fly at Air France and had since graduated to an executive position. So, he had joined the crew on this flight 447 in order to keep his type rating. Sideline search. What is type rating? From what I have seen, he needs to pilot a certain type of plane in order to continue to be able to pilot and to pilot that aircraft, right? Because he, if he's doing like some energy job in the exact position, but he still wants to be a pilot, he needs like a certain amount of hours piloting a specific aircraft. That's what I get. Correct me if I am wrong. So, his landing in Rio de Janeiro during the inbound trip was his first in the past three months. We have to talk a bit about the hours that they have had under their wing and what this actually means. This, out of all of the sidelines, all of the side searches, is one of the most infuriating and least logical to me. Like, make it make sense. Somebody please make this make sense. So, pilots, if you didn't know, actually fly manually, like, they fly the plane for about three minutes. That's just during takeoff and then during landing. The A330 is the latest generation of airplane. The aircraft is so advanced, Aviation experts say it almost flies itself. On long-haul flights, pilots get about three minutes of actual flying, just from takeoff to wheels up, and then wheels down to landing. Everything else is autopilot doing what it's supposed to do, and the pilot's just monitoring the dashboards to make sure that the plane is flying itself correctly. So, that brings us to a question, what are these flight hours, like we just told you, 10,000, 2,000, what did uh, Robert had about almost 7,000, what do they actually mean? Because I immediately thought, like, if I don't do something at my workplace, which is not even remotely close to flying a fucking plane, like, 90% of that information is just gone from my brain. Like, if I don't invoice somebody, I'm like, wait, how do you do invoices again? Like, I need a refresh on this fucking thing because I haven't done it in months. And that's exactly what happens with pilots. 
de-skilling. When pilots rely too heavily on automation, their manual flying skills can deteriorate, and their situational awareness can become less acute. This can result in flying becoming a monitoring task, with pilots simply just observing abstract information on the screen while flying. This is called de-skilling, and it can be particularly pronounced among senior pilots who frequently fly long-haul routes or work in big crews. So from what I get from that is like the amount of hours doesn't really mean much, because like flying more hours actually means you're more in the mentor position, you're monitoring more, you're actually flying even less. And this is so bizarre to me, because I was thinking, like, today, as I was walking for lunch, I was just thinking, like, okay, let's just say I am in, like, a co-pilot, like, thinking of co-pilots or just, like, the third pilots, the relief ones, right? That would be as if, like, being a passenger in a car, right? And you'd be like, well, I know everything about this car, I know how this car goes, I know what all of these dashboards mean, I know how the engine works, I know all of it, everything about the car, but I have never had a driving test, I have never had those, however, like, what is the mandated amount of hours that I need to have to get a driver's license, and just getting a driver's license because I have been in a car for 10 plus hours and I know how these dashboards work. That is crazy to me. I don't know, that is just so, so, so insane to me. Because then if you think about it, like, if pilots are flying, like, for three minutes during the flight, that means 10k hours isn't 10k hours. It's maybe 10. Like, I don't know. That just makes a lot more sense to me. Like, if they're manually, like, manning this vehicle, that is a lot less hours than what I have just told you. So, the person with the most experience, Captain Dubow, had only actually made 15 takeoffs and 18 landings in the previous six months, despite logging 346 hours of flight time. What this meant is that he had very little hands-on experience manipulating the controls of the aircraft, as most of the time he's just monitoring the systems. Similar patterns were observed with the other two pilots, and their experience largely consisted of observing the automation systems rather than directly controlling the plane. In order to properly go into the point of view of the pilots, at least, I don't have any details on the rest of the crew here, we have to move on from this sideline and go into their stay at Rio, so just prior to their shift. Did they get enough sleep? What were they getting up to? How were they preparing themselves? for flying this plane. So the whole crew, the whole crew for this plane arrived in Rio on May the 28th. So this would just be three days before the flight. And this would be a three-day stop before the return to Paris. Now, the Rio de Janeiro route is most probably, like, very desirable. Thinking about this, like, as a pilot, this is where you want to go. If you're doing long-haul flights, this is it. And this is because you get to have the three-day break. You get a probably paid stay at the hotel. This article didn't say, but I suppose it does. At Copacabana Beach. Now, during this time, pilots would often indulge in different activities. They would party, they would explore attractions, they would dine at different restaurants. And on this particular trip, First Officer Bonin did just that. He actually brought his wife with him. Captain Dubow brought uh, his girlfriend, and the girlfriend was a flight attendant and an opera singer. Witnesses had reportedly seen the couple enjoying the nightlife, 
and this would be evening before the flight. So the boy, the most experienced pilot, on this flight managed to sleep for only one hour before embarking on the flight 447. Allegedly, obviously, this is just hearsay from the witnesses. And all right, that does sound drastic, especially thinking that they're going on to the overnight flight. Yes, maybe this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them to go to Rio. I don't actually know, can pilots choose their own routes and where they want to fly and how long they can stay? Probably not. I would assume not. I don't think the flight attendants can, so I don't know if pilots can just choose like their regular route and if this is a regular occurrence or if this is their like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and visit Rio. So, probably they didn't get the best sleep the night before, they wanted to experience the nightlife. The boys certainly didn't. But, yes, maybe they didn't rest well. However, after all, they have had those working hours under the wing, the flying hours. They knew that this advanced plan will bail them out. They knew that they will be relying on autopilot, and they knew they were gonna have the relief officer, right? So that all of them can actually take a nap eventually. This also wasn't an old vessel. The plane that they're going to be flying, the A330, was designed with a focus on reducing the impact of errors made by the crew, unlike previous generations of airplanes. To achieve this, the plane was equipped with flight envelope protections, and these would prevent the pilots from pitching the plane too steeply up or down, flying too quickly or too slowly, banking too far to one side, creating g-forces that could damage the structure of the aircraft. And the aircraft Airbus A330 was a wide-body jet that utilized full fly-by-wire technology. And most importantly, I think, for this case, especially for the aftermath of it, had an exemplary safety history. They had no fatal accidents since its inception in 1994. And thanks to the plane's advanced flight management system, they should, these pilots should have been able to enter the entire flight plan before departure. So the plane would then fly itself from just the takeoff until before landing. The pilot's job is to consist of tactical decision-making and monitoring the instruments. And as we are in the point of view of the crew, we know more technical information about this flight. So, from Rio onto this plane, how the pilots look at their shifts. I find this to be interesting, probably the least infuriating thing from my side searches. So, they refer to this as flight duty. Flight duty is technically like when the shift begins and then when the shift ends. It means the time during which the flight crew member operates in an aircraft as a member of the crew. The beginning of the shift, from what I have seen, differs. So here I think they were on that plane at 8 p.m., so like they had to prepare for about like two and a half hours, make sure everything is all right. But the ending, so of that duty period, is probably like 15 minutes after the final flight. Like I think that differs a lot less, because you know, like they're done with the plane, they're leaving, they're just like offboarding the aircraft. So for pilots, their shift was not the duration of the flight, which was 11 hours, 15 minutes. It was 12 hours and 45 minutes. And due to the circadian law, wait, wait for another Google search if you already don't know what it means. Which a lot of you will. I didn't. I'm fucking dumbass. They had an extra pilot to allow for scheduled rest. So 
Circadian law, I'm putting the script, is just a cool way of saying when you're most tired, and it's between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if you are operating on a 24-hour routine and you sleep at night, when you are least productive, when you have most physiological sleepiness, and when your performance capabilities are lowest is between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So let us dive a bit more into that just to explain the relief pilot and their role, like why there was actually a third person in the cockpit. The Airbus A330 is actually designed to be flown by two pilots only, but the 13-hour duty time, so the total flight duration we just spoke about, required for the Rio-Paris route exceeded the 10 hours permitted before a pilot can take a break. Well, has to take a break. This is mandated by Air France's procedures. So to comply with these procedures, Flight 447 was crewed by three pilots, a captain and then two officers. With three pilots on board, each pilot would take a break in the rest cabin located behind the cockpit, which led to the weirdest sideline, the weirdest side searches, because I had to check what this looks like. Because, yet again, as you go through this story, there were certain things I was like, could the passengers hear a lot of things that were happening in the cockpit? Also, could a person just sleeping behind? Like, did they have earplugs? A lot of things are just not explained. And like, for me, I'm like, where the hell is this place hidden? It's kind of, like, well hidden inside of a plane. A lot of you might find this claustrophobic, so I'm not 100% sure I will include the pictures. To me, honestly, I have stayed at worse of hostels. Like, I have had worse accommodation in hostels than what this looks like. So, there have, have been... Basically, the whole of the vessel has a cabin for especially these long-haul flights. On, honestly, like, when I searched this, then I went into another sideline, and this one I will not tell you the answers to, because when I started talking about it with a friend, they were like, just shut the fuck up. Like, I'm, I don't want to be a paranoid person. I searched, like, the safest place on the plane, like the safest seat, like where is it? There are articles on it, there's quite a few on it, but again, I'm not gonna tell you where it is, so you can look it up online, and also a lot of you will then just be paranoid, like, oh, I need to take these seats. I get that angle as well. It just... so many side googs, side searches, some of them to understand the case, some of them just personally to, I don't know, make myself even worse, feel even worse here. Uh, one last thing, the vessel now, and how it actually connects with the training that the pilot has received, that the pilots have all received. So we're going back into the case from all of these side searches. You now know they're all at the cockpit, inside of that cockpit, and two of them are going to have to, like, depart and then take naps during this flight, and that's why the third pilot is there. So, the aircraft is equipped with three of what is known as pitot tubes. What these, I don't know, gun barrel-looking devices are used for is measuring airspeed. This is not ground speed, but the speed of the airplane at an altitude. And every A330 has three pitot tubes positioned around the nose, so just underneath the cockpit. And during the final four minutes of this flight, the readings that these tubes led to will be what will confuse these pilots. 
Now, these pitot tubes are not super pricey, considering obviously how much everything to equip the plane costs. They cost approximately $3,500 each for the model that was at this time used on flight 447. And however, despite of their low cost, you would think they play an essential role. They're calculating the speed when you're in the air, pretty freaking essential for the plane to function. Without them, and with them malfunctioning due to, let's say, bad weather, the aircraft's flight computer is unable to determine airspeed, and the autopilot system gets deactivated. Now, when the autopilot gets deactivated, if any of the pitot probes become obstructed with, let's say, debris or ice, the plane will revert to manual control, forcing the pilots to manually fly this massive aircraft in whatever conditions caused the pitot obstruction in the first place. And this, as you can imagine, is going to be what will lead to confusions of the pilots and then will also lead to a crash. However, it shouldn't. Obviously, there is training on what you as a pilot should do should anything like this happen, like weather conditions causing something to happen to pitot tubes. So the pitot probes are similar to the car's speedometer, and pilots are trained to respond to their failures by maintaining pitch, so like leveling the plane and thrusting until the probes begin to function again. Typically, in most cases, this strategy proves to be effective. Now, something to pin in your head, though, as it becomes very much relevant after the case, like once we go into the point of view of the families here. Air France's official policy was to replace this type of pitots on this type of vessel, A330, only when a failure occurred. So, it almost seemed as if they didn't want to spend the free thousand dollars on each of these tubes unless they had to. Now, we have to speak about the model that was used on this plane. The short story is the model is called AA Tails, and there were some faults when it comes to this model. Um, I'm just gonna say this company has been real quiet since this incident. I have done the side search on them. There's no articles on this model AA Tails since 2009, and you can understand why. Once you have heard the intro of this story, you can understand why. However, Air France requested Airbus to provide evidence that this other model of the tubes were more effective in icy conditions. However, then this kind of wasn't like proven, so they had taken the draft of the table, and then regulators discovered there were 17 cases of icing, nine of which actually occurred in 2008, and that the failures appear to be happening more frequently. So they were like, okay, we need to change these models, right? We need to change these pitot tubes. And this was kind of posing not an issue. Like, pilots were actually aware of, I think, nine incidents in total that were happening with pitot tubes in 2008 and 2009. However, they obviously had to do something. So, although none of the incidents posed immediate danger, Airbus was asked to monitor their situation and report back. 
The Tales AA was not taken out of service. It wasn't until April of 2009 that Airbus delivered test results to Air France showing that the other model actually did work better in ICE. And by then, 19 months had passed since the service bulletin suggested the same thing in 2008. And Air France now was supposed to make that change, so to change these TAILS AA pitot tubes to another model. At the end of April, the airline ordered replacement PA probes, the new model, for the A330s, and on May the 26th, the first batch of probes arrived. Five days later, when Flight 447 took off in Rio, the probes were still in an Air France warehouse, and none of them had been installed. All three PITOs on Flight 447 were this old model, TAILS AA, and the probes should have been changed on the plane's arrival in Paris. So once they land, the plane, you know, goes, it's taken away and prepared for the next flight, that is when these pitot tubes underneath the cockpit were supposed to be changed. Before you shout and scream, I just realized I have offloaded a lot of content that is semi-technical, so dumbing it down extremely, pitot tubes at the bottom of the cockpit. They are used to measure the airspeed. So adverse weather conditions mean like they can be clogged up with things. It means the dashboard, so everything that the pilots are monitoring is acting up or like is reflecting that. Those conditions can be avoided and that's why so many models just haven't been changed in the past. They are avoided by pilots just leveling the plane. So they shouldn't be going like extremely up or extremely down. They shouldn't be changing the attitude. They should just level the plane and eventually when the weather conditions are improved or they change a bit, once those uh, pitot tubes are emptied, the flight should just continue as normal. When it comes to the models of these pitotubes, they should have been changed upon the arrival in Paris. Did I miss anything from my script when it comes to um, the YouTube guy? Yes. So, he confirmed that the problem with these pitotubes would happen rarely, and the pilots were all trained on how to navigate it. However, during this training, the pilots would receive, they were at low attitudes, and there were no warning sounds played in their simulations, which is wild to me. Like, it's another thing that just pisses me off so much in this case, because why do the simulations exist then? Like, you're not flying a plane at a low attitude. Like, make it make sense. If simulations are supposed to represent real-life situations, why are they not on high altitudes and like with things that can go wrong just happening, like pitot tubes and how would you react in that situations and why are the alarm systems not sounding off? Yes, would it be annoying? Yes, we've all been in a fire alarm kind of situation. They're pilots. They need to know what each sound means, what, like, how to react under that kind of pressure. They're flying a plane. No pilots had actually received recent training on stall and recovery at high altitudes. The latest training was done years earlier, and it was at low altitudes. The crew would get on a plane earlier than all of the passengers, and the luggage has been mounted, and it is time for takeoff. 
According to our pilot YouTube guy, the plane was just about 9 minutes behind schedule, and the plane starts moving away from the gate. In the cockpit, we have Captain Dubois, who was now sitting in the left seat, and this is the usual position for a captain, despite being the pilot in command and ultimately accountable for the flight he was serving as the pilot not flying for this trip. His responsibilities included communication, checklists, and backup duties. Sitting in the right seat was First Officer Bonin, who was the least experienced one, and he was the designated pilot flying for this flight. His role involved taking off and then landing the aircraft and managing the automation during cruising. The relief officer would be, from what I have gathered, in what is known as the jump seat. So, this is obviously kind of like put aside when there's no third pilot, but in this flight, because of the reasons that I have mentioned, there will be a third pilot. And this person, so here, uh, Captain Robert, would have no control of the stick or anything when it comes to actually flying this plane. After the takeoff from Rio, Bonin followed standard procedures and engaged the autopilot. The flight path had been determined by Air France dispatchers in France and programmed into the aircraft's flight management computer prior to them taking off. The route was supposed to fly directly up the coast of Brazil and then continue northeastward towards Atlantic. The planned cruising altitude was 35,000 feet. This means they should not be going above this altitude, about 35,000 feet. Now, the only weather obstacle was a line of thunderstorms associated with the intertropical convergence zone, which spanned the Atlantic just north of the equator. Quick geo lesson, because I know a lot of people will be like, what the fuck is this? It is the region that circles the equator, so the winds come together. And because of that collision, like, thunderstorms can happen, like, a lot of different weather conditions can happen. And satellite imagery indicated a developing pattern that was potentially stronger than usual, with clusters of storms too high to fly over, but then gaps that could be maneuvered through horizontally. This is something that they're aware of, right? Like, because of how long their shift is, because of them getting on the plane and being briefed on all of this. This is something they knew, the weather conditions, the altitude they should be flying, like, everything like that. And the pilots, at this moment in time, are just chatting in the cockpit. We don't know what about, due to a very specific reason, however. The reason being the voice recorder. Even if you were to look up the transcripts, the cockpit voice recorder was a self-erasing loop, so you will not find anything up until just after midnight. Because, basically, after every two hours, it would self-erase reasons, reasons that we are going to discuss, reasons including long-standing privacy concerns by pilots. So, as a result, the voice recording opened on the scene two hours and five minutes before the end, or just one hour and 40 minutes into the flight. So, we don't know what the pilots in the cockpit are chatting right now. However, 30 minutes in, in terms of, like, what people have retrieved from the black boxes, the night looked smooth and clear. They were taking off, autopilot was operating as normal, and it was leveling the plane at 35,000 feet. 
When it comes to the passengers, this would be when their dinner would get served, the lights would be dimmed, and just in the cockpit, the relaxed mood was prevailing. They're making radio calls, uh, passing position reports to air traffic control. It's all pretty quiet. In the middle of the Atlantic, uh, in the middle of the night, there's not much to do. In the passenger cabin, dinner has been served and the cabin lights dimmed. It is eight hours to Paris and many of those making the flight are settling into sleep. There's also a relaxed mood in the cockpit. <laughs> There was a bit of chop. You know, the aeroplane was chopping around a little bit, but it wasn't severe. Aviation safety specialist David Learmount has studied the transcripts of Flight 447's cockpit recordings. It's quite clear that they had a good situational awareness of the fact that they, they were cumulonimbus clouds, which they would have to avoid, which is all standard stuff in that part of the world. As they fly towards the equator, the weather begins to deteriorate. This zone is infamous for its severe thunderstorms, with massive clouds impossible for commercial planes to fly over. Sometimes you've really got to uh, think about where, which route you're going to take and which headings you're going to take up to try and avoid them. As they're flying over the coast of Brazil, they decide, well, everything seems fine, so the relief pilot, Robert, right in the back, leaves to that hidden place where he should just take some rest. We don't know exactly when he left again, because the voices in the cockpit only began recording just after midnight, and the two other pilots are presumably communicating with the control centers in Brazil. Not presumably, we know this part because of the recordings. Now, remember flight path, right? Like, everything was auto-programmed for them, that they're gonna go Brazil, then Northeast, then Atlantic, then Europe, Paris, like, all of that. Well, According to our YouTube guy, on this evening there was a formatting error in the flight pen that was filed. So the pilots were unable to log into this system once they reached the oceanic coverage. And because of this, as soon as they reach the Atlantic, they will not be able to be accurately tracked anymore. Someone would think like this is the most important time. This is not like to be errored by humans or by machines or anything. And it's just one of those little tangents that later do not make sense in terms of like, who is actually liable here? Who is actually at fault? Is it all the fault of the pilots or is it the fault of all these little things that people are trying to just brush off? After the airplane passed out of the range of the air traffic control radar, the boy would contact Atlantico. And this is the organization responsible for the airspace over the Atlantic Ocean. He provided a controller with the flight's position and the estimated time for two upcoming waypoints. The controller acknowledged his report and instructed the flight to maintain its current altitude of 35,000 feet. Bonin commented, eh, well, there you are, to which Dubois replied, Wilco, which is just like expressing agreement. And this was the flight's final verbal communication with ground control. As the last communication with ground control happens, the plane is just in autopilot and the pilots are monitoring the dashes in front of them. Now, let us 
let me actually me dumb down the readings of these dashes and how everything really interacts right because they're just an autopilot monitoring these and like going along with this flight based on what they're reading right so we have already mentioned the pitot tubes at the bottom of the cockpit if anything is to happen like if anything was to clog them obviously they signal to the cockpit and then the pilots are looking at those dashes and seeing what is going on. So there are three dashboards that they would be in particular looking into. And if all three are working or if two out of three are working, this is what is known as normal law. It means all of the protections are available at the aircraft. However, if only one is working or if neither of all of those three are functioning, that is what is known as the alternate law, meaning there are issues. The few important bits with the alternate law is autopilot is switched off, so the pilots have to man the plane themselves, they don't have altitude protection, and also the plane, however, can be stalled, so the plane can still be falling down because there's a lack of altitude protection. And this is when we get to the turbulence zone. As the plane approached the equator on its way to Paris, it had entered a so-called intertropical convergence zone that often produced storms with heavy rain. In the recordings, even like later at the time, because like by midnight, right, like we would not have anything, any data from the voice recorders, but in the reenactions of what was going on in the cockpit, you can hear the rain on the windows. And obviously, because of the amount of clouds, the pilots would be able to see that they are entering cloud cover. structural damage if a thunderstorm is severe enough. You get uh, icing, you get the hail, you get lightning, which can also damage an aircraft. But Captain Dubois doesn't seem that worried and keeps Flight 447 on its current heading. Navigating around those storm clouds is it's it's not demanding. You look at them, if they're in front of you, you turn left or turn right and you fly round them. I mean, this is not difficult stuff. The pilots here then start discussing how to avoid the clouds and just any disturbance to the plane. And at this point, they're not really worried. They are kind of like adjusting the lights depending on what's going on in the cockpit, so like they're dimming them just to see what's going on. And at this moment in time, Dubois decides to take his own break. So he presses on the button, which I think like is kind of like the alarm clock for the, um, the other pilot, Robert, who was sleeping. And Robert appears within about two minutes after Dubois' call. There is a quick briefing on the weather conditions between pilots here, just as they are switching about, because obviously one of them was sleeping, like he wasn't aware of what was going on during the past hour. And now we have Robert, the senior co-pilot, set on the left, serving as the pilot who is not flying the plane. And then we have Bonin on the right, who is still continuing to handle the basic flying chores, because at this moment in time, nothing had gone wrong as of yet. The airplane was still on autopilot and it was still at 35,000 feet. 
this, not so serious that Captain Dubois won't take a sleep break. Before he does, establishes who will fly the plane in his absence. Dubois decides the least experienced pilot O'Neill is in control of the plane, not David Robert, who's now back in the cockpit from his sleep break. The weather gets worse. The plane was still in autopilot and still at the right altitude of 35,000 feet. The two of them, now Bonin and Robert, have a small chit-chat, like have you been able to sleep, are you feeling okay? Meaning they might have been fatigued, but as the voice recorder is now picking up on these chats, it indicates nothing alarming happening on the flight just yet. At 2.06 a.m., the first officer would inform the crew that they will encounter turbulences soon. And from what I have seen in this coverage by our pilot guy, it sounds like it was an announcement just for the crew. As in, it wasn't like to the whole of the like passenger base. I don't know if that was done. Uh, this is the only thing that I have seen mentioned. It has only been four minutes since the most experienced pilot went to sleep, and four minutes later, the emergency sequence begins. Bonin would start directing the plane slightly to the left in order to avoid the weather. So they're supposed to level it, they can kind of like zigzag and stuff, they shouldn't be going up, they shouldn't be going down though. The engine anti-ice system is also turned on, and by this point, the pilots are in control, they're just chatting along and commenting on the weather, unaware that due to the extreme cold, the water is freezing on certain parts of the plane, including those pitot tubes. Normally, this wouldn't be an issue, but if the concentration of the ice crystals is high enough, they can clog the pitot tubes, those airspeed sensors, faster than those built-in heaters that they have just switched on can melt them. As the ice is clogging the pitot tubes, the aircraft is still flying level, but the plane starts to tilt towards the right, and immediate confusion happens, and obviously, as a pilot, they're still not a pilot, right? They just look at the dashes, like, what is happening? And they see the tilt, and they see that they have dropped 300 feet when it comes to the level of the plane. What neither man realizes is that the freezing temperature outside has caused ice to block three critical speed sensors called pitos. The blocked speed sensors cause the autopilot to temporarily shut down, but there is no emergency. The plane is still in level flight. All that Bonnier at the controls has to do is maintain that level flight. Sensing a discrepancy between the free sources of airspeed data, those three pitot tubes, at 2, 10, and 4 seconds, the autopilot disconnects, with the sudden cavalry charge warning. This brings us to the alternate law. Autopilot is switched off, they are in control of the plane, they don't have the high or low speed protection, and this change happened immediately, like almost within seconds, catching the pilots off guard and leaving them with the manual control of the aircraft. I cannot emphasize this next part enough. From this moment on, 2.10 in the morning, everything we will talk about next happened in 4 minutes and 24 seconds before the plane hit the ocean. The first officer pulls the stick in order to pitch up. So, Bonin's idea of how to avoid this weather is to go 
above the clouds. Now, he is moving the plane upwards using the stick, and if you remember, this isn't what he should be doing. Like, there was already a max speed, he shouldn't be going above 35,000, and he should just be leveling the plane. However, the aircraft was now climbing with 6,900 feet per minute, and this is more than seven times higher than a normal rate would be. dramatically on his side stick. There was no reason to do this. Absolutely none. Okay? It was like he got a shock. The dash is the flight director, so those dashboards that I have mentioned, when visible, are showing the right data to these pilots in the cockpit right now. But from what I gauged from our pilot guy on YouTube, when the plane starts falling, they would sometimes disappear. So, they would kind of like flick off and then flick back on, because the plane was never meant to experience these conditions. They are working correctly, however, when the pilots are checking them. But in those four minutes, right, like due to disorientation and confusion, they're losing speed and they're looking at these dashboards and I bet like Obviously, we have no idea, we just know based off of like, what they were discussing, but this must be so confusing, right? Like, you are assessing, are they showing the right data? And everything is happening, everything is beeping in that cockpit. The flight director bars appear now, and the co-pilot gets the first officer to trust them and to go down. But Bonin still isn't moving the plane downwards. In fact, if I understood this right, they're still climbing just at a slower rate. They press the button to try to get the boy, the sleeping pilot, back in. And the boy is not responding. And this is when the stall warning starts sounding. This is the one that's just genuinely like you're repeating stall, stall, stall. And it goes on for 45 seconds. Stall, stall. Stall, stall. Which is not discussed by anybody in the cockpit from the voice recorder data. Due to these sounds, due to this repeating noise, and also the sheer panic, Bonin starts flying the plane even higher. And this would be at an angle similar to a takeoff. This means that the bottom part, like the back of the plane, the stabilizer, in the back is moving into a nose-up position. The whole plane now was impossible to control, and they were approaching a stall. They rise up to 37,000 feet, which exceeds the max altitude, and people online have through the years debated why. Why did Bonin continue going upwards? A couple of things that make sense to more technical people, and then I will tell you my personal opinion. Bonin was eager to ascend to a higher altitude before going through this uh, intertropical convergence zone in order to avoid turbulence by staying above the clouds. We, however, don't know if he communicated this to his co-pilot and then, like, to the boy as well. People also speculate the reason why nobody corrected Bonin was because they couldn't see where the stick that he was using for the manual flying of the plane was, as in, the stick is positioned in such a way where Bonin can see it, but the person that is co-piloting with him cannot. 
Those are the two reasons that more technical people and pilots online are using to try to explain why nobody prevented Bonin from going up and why Bonin himself did it. Because from everything I have told you, this is against the training, it's against the procedure, it's against everything he should be doing, having had it back on his head like the weather for that night. But for non-technical people, I was racking my brain and I thought like, well, if you were to give me, without any knowledge of everything I have told you, like a manual stick and be like, hey, this, these are the weather conditions, you have no knowledge of anything, how are you avoiding a plane from crashing? Well, if the plane is going up, it's not going down. At least to me, like without the knowledge of stalling and how planes stall, like different to the cars, that would be my first thought, that would be my first assumption. And in a state of panic, what if it was his? What if that is why he just thought like he will avoid it by going through the clouds, going over the clouds, that is how he's going to avoid the weather. We will never know like what was in his mind that evening. The plane will, however, reach the position where the wings can't move any further up. And this is where the aircraft can start to fall. The stall angle is reached, and this is when the aircraft starts to shake violently. So these would be the last four minutes on that plane. As the plane is plummeting, however, at this point, pitot tubes had unfrozen. This might be because they were no longer in the clouds, like they're literally falling, and the airspeed indicators were working normally again. This might not have been obvious to Bonin and Robert, and this is where I kind of disagree with so many people who are biased on this account in terms of these pilots and their training and pitot tubes and like how all of these factors worked together. And this is because they had no idea of the speed that the indications at this point should have shown and apparently did not have the presence of mind to calculate themselves from the GPS, the right ground speed, which had been displayed on the navigational system all along. So what I'm saying is how if if what our pilot guy is saying right and these dashboards are going off when the weather conditions are shite and then like showing back up and flashing back up how do you know you can trust them that is the thing like you have to you have to assume that they're showing the right thing but in this sheer panic under this stress you m must be able to like try to do your own math under literally the worst circumstances of your life 
For the next 12 seconds, neither pilot would speak. Amid repeated stall alarms, the airplane ran out of the ability to climb. The descent rate started growing. It grew to 3,900 feet per minute, and as a result, the angle of the attack would increase with the whole plane now shaking. This would be when the relief pilot finally joins them, confused and just with no time for anybody to brief him. So the boy finally knocked on the cockpit wall, signaling that he was coming. The boy had just woken up from a nap. He is entering the cockpit. He is witnessing the warning system repeatedly saying stall, stall, stall. And he is witnessing the relief pilot saying, but we've got the engines. What the hell is happening? Do you understand what is happening or not? The boy is now the most experienced, but this doesn't matter anymore because nobody has the time to brief him, nobody has the time to tell him what has been going on for the past couple of minutes, and that the plane is stalling, the plane is falling. Nobody is realizing that the plane is falling. Bonin said, fuck, I don't have control of the airplane anymore. I don't have control of the airplane at all. Because the right wing was stalled more deeply than the left, the airplane was just rolling in that direction. Robert, next to him, screamed controls to the left. Using the priority button on his side stick, he assumed control of the plane. He had it only for a second before boning using his own priority button took the control back. And then this obviously leaves the co-pilot super confused, saying, fuck, what's going on? Because they're not seeing the sticks that each of them, like, is using. It's so frustrating. It's so freaking frustrating how they are under so much stress they cannot communicate what they're doing. All this time, Bonin will be tilting the stick to the left and always pulling it down, shooting the plane upwards, or thinking, rather, the plane is still going upwards, but because the plane had reached the stall position, it's actually falling. It's plummeting at this point and he is repeating how he is losing the control of the plane. At this point, the situation in the cockpit is so much different than just few minutes ago before the turbulences. The boy entered it one minute and 38 seconds after the pitot tube is malfunctioned. It's not known whether he knelt or stood behind Bonin and Robert, or if he was sitting in the jump seat. I truly hate, hate, hate to think about the conditions whether the crew was sitting down, whether the passengers were sitting down, I just, like, it pops into my brain every now and then. I just hate it. 
and we'll speak about it later when we speak about the cameras and how useful they might have been in a case like this inside of the cockpit. The conditions in the passenger cabin were not known. Maybe the first class might have heard the stall sounding system or like the commotion happening at the cockpit, but there were no screams, like no evidence of panic when it comes to the passengers on the plane. From what I get now, depending on how defrosty the tubes are and if anything is happening to the pitot tubes underneath them, and also because they are stalling, they're falling, so the sounding systems are going off telling them something is wrong with the plane, even when the stall system isn't doing that, even when it's not just like blasting, stall, 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 there are other warning systems that are signaling something is wrong to the people in charge. At this point, the plane is descending 10 to 15,000 feet a minute, and the first officer is trying to hit the brake instead of realizing that they are stalling. He would say, yeah, yeah, I'm going down, no. And the relief pilot just says, like, you're going down, yes. These final moments on the Air France Flight 447 would go down as some of the most tragic, just most baffling, most frustrating, you just wish you were there, to do something and to stop it. Robert would say, so go down, so give me the controls, the controls to me, controls to me. Our YouTube pilot guy actually thinks that this was finally a realization. The first officer was heading them upwards all the time and that this is why they started stalling and the plane is plummeting. This, however, again, because of the stick positions, leads to something that is known as dual input. So Boning is still heading the plane upwards and his co-pilot starts directing the stick downwards, meaning nothing happens because those two functions even each other out. They're not doing the exact same action, so nothing happens when one moves the stick one way, the other moves it the other. Go ahead, you have the controls, said Boning and the warning system is sounding stall, stall. Stall, stall. Stall, stall. Stall, stall. Watch out, you're pitching up there, said Dubois. Both Bonin and Robert were still going at their own stakes, doing the opposite action. I'm pitching up, said Robert. You are pitching up, Dubois shouted. Even though the controls were handed over to the co-pilot, the relief pilot is changing his mind about the strategy and he's still pitching up. Bonin said, well, we need to. We are at 4,000 feet. And this was true. It was far too late to recover the plane at this point. Neither of the other pilots can see from where they're sitting. What they needed to do, uh, because the airplane was so deeply stalled, was to dramatically push the stick forward because there was nothing wrong with the airplane at all. Not a soul, not a dicky bird wrong with the airplane. The stall warning alarm has rung 58 times. Now it cuts out. Like 
we might not be able to save ourselves. How would it have been for the passengers, do you think? Well, I hope is that most of them were asleep. It was two o'clock in the morning, but I think an awful lot of them wouldn't have been. And some of them who were would have been woken up. And when they were woken up, they would have heard this very unfamiliar noise. This, the airplane would have been juddering and buffeting, and they would have known something was very, very wrong. The passengers, I'm not sure what they would have made of it. Doesn't bear thinking about. I have wondered, but I don't think we can even guess. Captain Dubois suddenly realizes what Bernier has been doing all along, pulling back on the stick, pushing the aircraft's nose up and stalling it. Beyond stall alarm now, there's another one that starts sounding off, and this is a sink rate alarm. This is when the plane falls beyond 2,500 feet. So both captain and first officer are screaming. The warning system is sounding, pull up, pull up, pull up. The boy said, go on, pull. We are going to crash, Boning cried out. This can't be true, but what's happening? The voice comment was the last one recorded on the cockpit voice recording. 10 degrees pitch altitude. Shortly after the voice comment, Air France Flight 447 crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. The descent rate was 11,000 feet per minute, resulting in a belly-first impact. The aircraft passes through 2,000 feet. Its ground proximity warning system detects the ocean below and its alarm rings out. They knew, all three pilots knew they were about to die because they could see that they'd completely run out of height. And the last couple of seconds, um, they'd just given up. At a time of 2.14 and 28 seconds, 228 lives were lost. The coverage compared it to being dropped from the 46th floor to the ground. There was no chance of survival for the 216 passengers and 12 crew members. The investigator's report later would not indicate that the crew communicated with the passengers during the last minutes. And I can only hope they were all fast asleep and unaware of their surroundings on impact. Before we talk about the families and go into the point of view of them waiting for their loved ones at the airport and finalize the investigation here, we have to speak about whether or not this was preventable, because that's the first question that usually comes to people's minds, and the answer is yes, and yes, on so many levels, right? Like, even the turbulence conditions, we know that that was definitely preventable. Had they just engaged the heating system to get rid of, like, the ice in the pitot tubes and not level the plane up, just, like, leveled it to a certain degree just to avoid the turbulences, they would have been fine. They would have, yes, had the turbulences, they would have had the plane shake, and then those conditions would be averted and they would be flying all right. However, 
let's say they, because of sheer panic, ignored it, even when the plane started to stall, even when plummeting, up until they drop below 13,000 feet, and this is by other experts online, the plane could have still been salvaged. Like, there were sounding system, warning systems telling them that the plane is stalling. They could have still salvaged the situation. Had the plane dropped below that level, that is when it would have probably, at that level, like 13,000 feet, taken a perfect pilot to do what you usually see in the movies, which is like point the nose of the plane downwards, and then just when they're above the waves, point the plane upwards to avoid the crash. But below that altitude, people agree online that this was just unsalvageable. Once the sounding system was saying pull up, at this point it was too late. The crash brings us to the points of use of the families. There's a video online of parents waiting at the airport in the morning, and it's really, it's not even bizarre because of the time we're talking about, like, you know, still 2000s, but also what is your first thought? Like, you're waiting for somebody, first thought is obviously their plane had been delayed, and you don't see the landing time, you don't see any of that. You assume the worst, but you assume the worst in, like, what if it was a bomb? What if it was a terrorist attack? People just weren't assuming that this plane just went down on its own. Families and friends gather to meet the flight at Charles de Gaulle Airport. There were many planes landing here in Paris on that very long evening, but Air France Flight 447 had simply vanished. There was no mayday call, no trace on radar, and certainly no witnesses. Eventually, Air France had to make that dreadful announcement. The flight could no longer be in the air, and all 228 passengers on board had been lost. What the families didn't know is that at 4 a.m., the controllers in Senegal started realizing that they have not heard from Air France 447 for almost two hours after the crash. Despite their attempts to reach the plane by contacting other control centers, other planes, and Air France, there was no communication that was established since 2 a.m. At 5 o'clock, the Air France dispatcher notified the Dakar Control Center that a serious problem had likely occurred, after many failed attempts to make contact via satellite. Difficulty in finding this plane will be because it was in the radar-free area, and if you remember that error in the flight plan, this is why they would not have their exact location. More than 10 hours would elapse by the time the search planes were finally dispatched, and by this point, like, the debris, you know, like, leftovers of the plane pointing people towards where the crash had happened would have already dispersed. The searches now begin, and uh, families are going to be dealing with Francis' Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis, that we're just going to shorten to BEA. So, despite not having the aircraft, the BEA had access to data that was transmitted by the vehicle, so like the vessel, right? Airbus A330, to the airline for diagnostic purposes. And the system would send data every 10 minutes, with additional messages triggered if certain warning conditions arose, and they realized that they did have the last message that was sent at 2.10 in the morning, so just four minutes prior to the crash. And this indicated a problem with the pitot-static system, 
autopilot, disengagement, and controls in alternate law. So it was telling them a bit about what was actually going on at the cockpit. Then the additional messages in those last four minutes told them about different faults with the air data reference unit, which process airspeed, and they told them about the high rate of descent. So, those messages are sufficient to prompt speculation. They didn't provide explanation or the cause of the accident. I think they eliminated certain things, right, for, um, well, the bear that was the only, probably, investigative body at that time that had some data, like, it provided them with information that this was probably a fall a crash into the ocean, that it wasn't, like, a terrorist attack, it wasn't a bomb, like, but they still had to figure out what was going on and get more and more information. Now, I'm going to summarize nearly two years of searches that the family closely followed, because their loved ones' bodies were, by all accounts, in the ocean, and without the black boxes, they would never know what happened to them. Days after the plane disappeared, debris was spotted floating in the ocean. However, it will take almost two years, and 31 million euros, which is 27 million pounds, you know, más o menos, search to locate what remained of the plane on the seabed and recover the black boxes and the voice recorders. And only then would the reports come out explaining what actually happened in the cockpit. So, the first couple of days, by the afternoon of June the 1st, it was announced that the flight was missing and that it was little, there was little hope for any survivors. In the days that followed, search and rescue teams led by Brazil, the US, and France would go into the ocean for any signs of the wreckage. On June the 6th, personal effects and two bodies were discovered, and there was a discovery of the vertical stabilizer on the aircraft on June the 7th. The stabilizer is that wing section, so they would know at this point how the plane hit the water. And this would eliminate things like terrorist attack, finally, and it would have confirmed for people that this was a crash. The wreckage analysis and autopsy results disclosed that the plane hit the water in a nearly flat pitch altitude, with a high rate of descent. But investigators still didn't know the cause of the crash, so the flight recorders would be holding the key to uncovering the answers. On the same day, June the 7th, the searchers would pull 15 more bodies from the Atlantic. And by the end of June, search teams had discovered over 600 fragments of the plane and the remains of 50 victims, including Captain Dubot. At our point in the timeline, in June of 2009, and without the black boxes, the articles are still blaming the airline, because the word on the pitot tube started spreading, like, what are they? What could have happened to them? Like, and also what started spreading is that they were about to be replaced, that they, nobody replaced them until they were supposed to land in Paris. So, like, they hear about the horror stories, articles reported on their effect, like, explaining what they do, that there have been situations previously on Airbus planes, and perhaps on others, where these tubes no longer indicated the airspeed because the plane would enter a humid area, a low-pressure area, an area of turbulence. 
If the Flight 447 pilots could not read the correct speed, the plane could have been flying too slowly or too fast with deadly results. The emphasis at this point is put on search of the ocean. Because yes, they have found debris, they found some bodies along it, but they need to do the sonar searches of the ocean, because the airline here, as you will find out, is to lose big. But if this is to be proven to be their fault, if it was the fault of the pitot tubes, both Airbus and Air France are, well, A, going to lose big, they have to compensate the families, but also, would they be able to operate any longer? Like, if this is proven to be fault of the vessel, or the actual airline, like, because of training of the pilots, because of maintenance work and how they actually mounted those pitot tubes, they are probably never to operate again. So, this brings us to speeding very much up to 2011, the fourth phase of the sonar searches. They would start focusing on the areas that they didn't cover previously, obviously, and this would be within the 37 kilometer radius around the last known position. This is, again, something that people cannot explain online. Why did it take them nearly two years? Until they focused on calling the statisticians. Actually, they called the team that found the Titanic in order to assess everything, like, do the math, basically, again, and be like, well, the debris and the bodies couldn't have fallen that far. Like, they can't be beyond this area. And this has actually proven to be true. Like, they were a lot closer than people had thought. And the crash is referred to by so many people online as Titanic of the Skies crash. A lot of people disagree with that because there was a reason the Titanic crashed. But I just might leave it in the title because of this part, because the team that found the Titanic would be the one to find the black boxes. And with the black boxes, answers answers to a lot of questions that we wouldn't have had, the families wouldn't have had to this day, had it not been for those. But just as it seemed the mystery of Flight 447 would never be solved, the American team that found the Titanic was called in. On the 2nd of April 2011, nearly two years after the crash, the plane's shattered fuselage was finally found 4,000 meters beneath the surface. With it, the all-important black boxes, when they did find them, it changed everything, because now we started really getting a clear picture. On the 3rd of April, a submarine equipped with a camera reached the debris field. There lay Air France Flight 447. It was on the barren floor of the abyssal plain, four kilometers beneath the Atlantic. What this had done, finding the black boxes, is also offer families some closure, because more bodies have been found with them. So, May the 2nd, the black boxes are sent to be analyzed by PEA, the France's safety agency. By May the 15th, all of the data from both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder were downloaded, and the findings were published in the report at the end of July. The entire download process would be recorded, and this is obviously for legal purposes, to make sure nobody's meddling with this data. So, the data will be there. People will learn, like the families and the investigators and the whole world later will learn what had happened inside of those cockpits. However, this is where I would like to be mistaken. But to me, it sounds like 
this is the point when the searches for the bodies have stopped. So let me loop you in on the bodies and the closure to the families that has been provided, or at least what I could find online, which really isn't a lot. Between the 5th of May and 3rd of June of 2011, 104 bodies were recovered from the wreckage. And because 50 were recovered before, this brought the total number of bodies found to 154. The pathologist would identify them, and this would be due to dental records and fingerprints. However, families must know, obviously, if their loved one bodies if their loved ones' bodies have been recovered from the ocean, but from what I have seen, I don't think it's available to the public. Even from the official and the final bear report, I could not see the list of the names of the passengers brought back to the families. The best I could find is seating positions of the passengers whose bodies were recovered. So to this day, I believe that this many bodies are yet to be returned to the families. 74 bodies that have never been returned. To this day, there's 74 bodies whose resting place might be the bottom of the ocean. Millions are invested when the companies are looking to save their own skin. Nothing is invested in searches for families to find closures. This is the point in the story where I would very much like to be proven wrong, for somebody to be like, no, actually, there's this report, there's still more bodies recovered, they have been returned to their families. If you have it, please let me know, because that is something that I would truly like to know. But from what I have seen, this is where the searches for the bodies have ceased. Next, for the families, would be finding out what Bea had uncovered, now with the black boxes in their possession. Bea issued multiple reports, and we're gonna go through the highlights from the first couple, so the 2009 and then, like, 2011, once they actually did have the black boxes. So, the investigators will listen to the recordings. Next, for the families, would be finding out what Bea had uncovered having black boxes in their possession. I'm going to just tell you, like, the highlights of the first couple of reports. So, Bea had multiple ones, and then the final one is obviously the most important one, because this is where they make the recommendations and really take everything into consideration. So, they would listen to the recordings, and this would be, like, the headquarters in Paris, where the investigators were finally able to listen to the voices of the crew in their final moments. The families at this point, at least from what I have read, don't have the access to these recordings. It's only the investigators, it's Bea that is writing these reports. So they are just having the peek into the reports by Bea, where they are seeing a very biased account of events of what had happened on that night, on that flight. The blame is falling solely on the pilot and the crew. Some of the highlights of the 2011 report focus on the stall warning going off for 54 seconds, the pilots and how they didn't apply the unreliable airspeed procedure, which is basically just leveling the plane, powering through, and trusting the systems are going to resolve what was happening to the pitot tubes, that they didn't comment on the stall warnings, that they didn't even realize what was happening, and that they were unable to determine which instruments to trust to sort the issue out. 
they focused on the reactions during the stall and how they were keeping the nose of the plane up, just deepening the stall instead of doing the complete opposite. They commented on the dual input and that the side sticks were cancelling each other out, basically doing nothing to prevent further the plane from crashing. And they did outline the possible reasons for it. Like, they did say, yes, this can possibly happen because of the outline of the vessel. Like, due to the layout of the Airbus, neither Captain Dubois sat in the observer seat behind the two officers, nor Robert could see the side stick inputs that Bonin had been making. Justifications were offered to this degree, however, right? So, just like, hey, yes, this is how aircraft is laid out. But 100% they were blaming it on the crew, saying that the dashes had worked fine, that the warnings have been taking place, both stall and pull-up warnings, when they were close to the ocean. The final report, however, now comes out in 2011. Well, in May of 2011, and I think it's made public in 2012. That's why I've seen, like, different dates online. And this goes through pretty much the same things, just in more details, kind of giving the families finally a reason. So, let me tell you what I mean by that. The flight data recorder has shown that the aircraft's descent into the sea was not caused by a mechanical failure or adverse weather conditions, but rather because the pilots raised the nose of the aircraft, causing it to slow down and enter an aerodynamic stall. Bea does mention here in this report how long they were stalling, all of the warnings, everything from the previous reports. The final report highlighted environmental stressors that the flight crew faced, as well as the startle factor, how surprised they were, multiple visual prompts, and audio warnings. However, then, they said that these would have made it impossible to rule out the chance that they did not hear the stall warning. The wording switched from solely blaming the crew, like the crash resulted from factors in combination, is something that they have used in this report. They mentioned the lack of practical training, lack of response to the warnings, lack of teamwork, lack of understanding of the approach to stall. The key clarification with the final report was on how nothing malfunctioned. There was no component that failed, but the tubes and heating elements were overwhelmed by external factors they were certified for, which led to loss of a speed and system degradations. While inconsistent airspeed data led to autopilot's disengagement, it remained unclear why the pilots did not attempt to lower the nose of the plane during the stall, which is standard procedure. Pitch information was gathered from several sensors, and no malfunction was detected in any of them. One possible explanation is that the pilots were unaware that the aircraft could stall when it switched to an alternative mode due to airspeed indication failure, as the A330 usually prevents control inputs that would lead to a stall. This report concluded that the crash was due to the crew's failure to diagnose the stall situation and, consequently, a lack of inputs that would have made it possible to recover from it. What is missing from either of the reports that Bea had issued is a public apology, expression of contempt, expression of what is missing from any single one of those reports is a public apology. Any sort of expression of sadness, 
grief, support for the families. None of those was offered by either Air France or Airbus or the manufacturer of the Pito tubes, tails. From this point on, this is just going to be finger-pointing between Airbus and Air France over whom is to blame for this crash, for 228 lives being lost. This report, however, did come with some recommendations, as I mentioned, and based on these, improvements have been made since. What had been recommended was pilot training through the crew resource management, upset recovery and high-altitude manual flying, including stall recovery and flight handling in alternate law. Our pilot guy here said that this stall and recovery now happens in high altitude. Wow, what a shock. Like, what are we talking about? Of course it should happen in high altitude. They're pilots. They're not flying this thing on the ground. So, it also happens in alternate law. Yeah, he emphasized on that because that wasn't happening before for whatever freaking reason. There have been changes to the vessel that have been made. So, the probes have to meet the specifications of the vessel. Yet another thing which is like completely common sense. But it's, as I'm saying, like these little things that make you kind of think like, okay, are they trying to just wash their hands off it? Because they are acknowledging that not everything was going great. Like, not everything was amazing with the vessel, with the training as well on top of that. However, they're really trying to take the culpability off both the Airbus and the Air France. Despite the significant impact of this crash on aviation safety, progress on reforms is very much still slow. And this is because of the disagreements within the industry. So, the investigation would lead to crucial changes in pilot training. And Bea's call for better tracking in radar dead zones was largely ignored until the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines in 2014, to which I put, like, how many people need to die? I will obviously, as I mentioned, be looking into this case, so I will further be mentioning um, the better tracking and just tracking when it comes to radar dead zones, but the progress when it comes to like what had actually happened, and this crash happened in 2009, is abysmal. Because other recommendations, right, were to keep the aircraft flying safe before any troubleshooting, several recommendations on black boxes and pitot tubes, search and rescue improvements, and, 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 and this is my most mistaking, most anger-inducing sideline ever, cameras in cockpits. To this day, like, I genuinely thought this was a logical thing. I thought cockpits had cameras up until this very research. I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my days. And then I went into a sideline search and lost my fucking mind. So, 12 years after this report, cameras in cockpits are not legally required everywhere. Which led to just literally top of first Google search, right? Search cameras in cockpits, articles that come up are about pilots being suspending after fighting in a cockpit mid-flight. What are we doing? What are we saying? But that's exactly it. Like, anything can happen. Like, these motherfuckers are flying a plane and fighting, like, having physical fucking fight club in, in a cockpit. This is, this is so, so insane. Why? Why? Why are there no cameras in cockpits? You get it. Privacy reasons. To which I say, 
police officers have cameras on them for exact same reasons. So listen to these arguments, right? Video surveillance will almost certainly be misinterpreted or get into the wrong hands, and it can adversely affect how pilots do their jobs. So there are whole unions that are like protesting against this, which it's great that there are unions, but that this is what they're anal about. What a camera can capture can be easily misunderstood and misconstrued, said a former test pilot and accident investigators, to which I say so can voice recordings. What are we on about? Like, cops have cameras on them. How much better would it be for everyone, if they had footage, to understand who was pulling what in this situation? Where was the first pilot placed? The visuals of the dashboards, the visuals of everything that was going on. Did those dashes go off or not? that would have been answered, like, were they flashing or not? A lot of those questions would not be up for a debate and would help clear companies' names as well. So not just the pilots, but Air France, like Airbus, all of that, would have just been resolved had there been cameras in the cockpits. People are protesting cameras for different reasons. It's a whole fucking thing. The unions are protesting them because of the invasion of privacy, but the airline industry is protesting, well, rather not super keen on them because of the cost. They protested the cost of the pitot tubes, which is like $3,000 and stuff. The US Federal Aviation Administration supports the use of cameras on a voluntary basis, while exploring screen capture technology. We're talking like cameras have been invented yesterday. Oh my god, just put them in motherfucking planes. The trial we are about to go into could reignite the privacy debate over cockpit monitoring, especially since security cameras have been commonplace. So we are gonna go into where this case stands today. By the accounts online, the searches for the families, for the bodies, have ended in 2011. On the surface, improvements have been made, but the question is to what degree. Families were wondering if this could happen again to another family member and also were yet to face Air France and Airbus in court. So from this point onwards, we are very much going into the who is at fault territory. So we have pilots, which at this point everybody but their families think is the right Option, it's the wrong thing to say. Everybody's biased and thinks that the pilots had been most at fault here. Then the manufacturer, Airbus, with the pitot tubes resulting in dashboards, flashing in and out, possibly not showing the right data, possibly not showing at the right times, data couldn't be trusted. And we have the Air France, the airline, pilot training. Were those pilots trained? again, from what I have been telling you, not in the right circumstances, which is essential for flying the plane. My personal opinion here, so we get that out of the way, and then I can tell you what had happened when it comes to 2011 all the way up until now. I definitely think this is undeniably human error to a certain degree, but some articles are just insanely biased. They do not see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is mentioned in the reports, as I'm telling you. Like, they're acknowledging, like, oh, yes, like, you know, all of these improvements had to be made, and the improvements have to be made because the process wasn't right in the first motherfucking place. And I was just thinking, like, put yourself in the shoes of you fucking up at your job, right? Like, you are, like, under extreme pressure, and you mess up. It might not lead to loss of lives if you are not a pilot, if you're not in the position of the people we spoke about today, 
but yes, it might lead to you losing your job. Is it partially the failure of the company that trained you, the equipment that you use, if it's in any way faulty? I would say yes. I would say that holds a certain percentage when it comes to who is at fault. And the families here wanted someone blamed, which began the from this point on in our timeline, 11-year battle to get this to court. The first thing that had happened in 2011 was that the families had been compensated. From what I had seen, uh, this is under the Montreal Convention governing airline accidents. So, if loss of life happens, automatically the airline has to pay up for the family, like, logically. Um, the Air France had paid them, and I think this had already been executed in 2011, according to multiple articles, 126,000 euros for each victim, so to each victim's family. The families also sued Airbus at this point that manufactured the A330 jet that had crashed. The court here ruled that Airbus was not required to make a provisional payment because its responsibility had not yet been established. Now, the victims will still believe that Airbus is partially responsible for the crash. The families managed to file the suit within the right time, and the amount of compensation could potentially increase depending on the final ruling on Air France's liability. So, we go into the trials area, and this would actually be the first time that companies, as opposed to individuals, have been directly held to account in a trial after an air crash. Lawyers for passengers' families have battled for years to have their day in court. And then, in 2019, decision to abandon the case because investigators were unable to establish who was to blame would be overturned. So, a quick recap of 2012 all the way to 2019, and the seven years of what the families were going through prior to this decision. There was a lot of finger-pointing, as I mentioned, would be Air France and Airbus both denied the accusations that their negligence had led to the crash. Airbus blamed pilot error for the crash, and Air France claimed confusing alarms confused the pilots. Both of them, however, were facing manslaughter charges from magistrates regarding the crash in 2009. However, then, the Paris prosecutor later suggested that only Air France should be tried for the incident. And that led, in September of 2019, the charges against both companies being dropped due to insufficient grounds for prosecution, so, like, for both the airline and the manufacturer. The general prosecutor and the Paris prosecutor would dispute this decision, and in 2021, the Paris Appeals Court ruled that both Air France and Airbus should be put on trial, finally finally get something. Like, this was a huge relief for the families, because they had support group for victims' families, expressing finally satisfaction that the court had heard their case after 12 years, which is frustration and uncertainty. The charges going into this long-awaited trial. So, we have charges against Air France that were manslaughter and negligence as the airline was aware of technical issues with the crucial airspeed monitoring instrument, but failed to properly train pilots to resolve them. Airbus faced the manslaughter that dropped charges in July of 2019, but will now stand trial alongside Air France. 
I couldn't find any documents on this trial, possibly because they're in French and possibly because the trial had happened at the end of last year, 2022. So let's go into the highlights of the trial and like stuff I could find from the articles. We're talking about a manslaughter trial that took place from 10th of October 2022 for eight weeks. The trial would start with reading of the names of the 228 passengers and crew who lost their lives. And the courtroom was said to be silent during that time. The families of the victims would be overcome with grief which would turn into anger because the CEOs of Air France and Airbus would plead not guilty to the charges of involuntary manslaughter and would express their condolences. Shame and too little too late would be heard in the courtroom when the lawyers made their opening statements. From my understanding, this is kind of like how defense versus prosecution works from all of those articles, Airbus defense teams would put the blame on the pilots. Different representatives from both Airbus and Air France, along with technical experts, have explained how the pilots initiated the climb after the instrument failure, which caused the engines to stall. The prosecution will fight these claims, saying that the flight director display provided inconsistent signals, which then led to its redesign to prevent confusion in similar circumstances in the future. And then there were also reps from the Airbus and the Air France with the technical experts that explained how the pilots initiated the climb after the instrument failure, which caused the engines to stall. Now, when it comes to the prosecution, and thinking here lawyers for the victims' families, they would try to blame it, obviously, on the tubes. And the pitot tubes became the center of this trial. Lawyers representing the families have stressed that both companies were aware of the pitot tube issue before the crash, and that the pilots were not adequately trained to handle a high-altitude emergency of this nature. On October the 17th, lawyers and victims' families were allowed to listen to the chilling in-flight voice recording of the pilot's final minutes for the first time ever. The trial of eight weeks and several pieces of evidence, such as voice recordings of the final moments of the crash, had ended on December the 8th. The French prosecutors made an announcement that they wouldn't seek convictions of Airbus or Air France. Prosecutors would say they are not going to pursue the charges of manslaughter as they were unable to demonstrate the guilt, yet again, and proposed that both companies be acquitted. The families were understandably infuriated by this judgment. The announcement that came from the prosecutor said, Corporate guilt seems impossible for us to demonstrate. We know that this view is difficult to hear for the civil parties, but we are not in a position to demand the condemnation of Airbus and their friends. Instead, Airbus and their friends should be justified in believing at the material time that these training and procedures should have been sufficient to manage the situation of Air France 447. Upon hearing this, several of the victims' families immediately displayed their anger and just discussed and called the prosecutors out for continuing to pin the blame primarily on the dead pilots. But even though the prosecutors moved to acquit Airbus and Air France, it does not instantly mean that the case is now closed and settled. 
From what I have seen, the judges will make the final ruling at a later date, after considering the eight weeks of hearings, testimonies, and evidence presented. So the families still have to wait on the judge's final decision. And if found guilty, both companies could face fines of up to 225,000 euros and damage to their reputation. However, no individuals will face prison time as only companies are on trial. What I have seen some legal experts say in those articles, if not found guilty, this trial will likely be the final time that Airbus and their friends are charged with the crash of a, um, Air France 447, unless new evidence arises. And it's highly unlikely the companies will be tried again unless something happens that connects them directly to the faulty tubes or the crash. As of now, it seems that neither of the companies will be held primarily responsible for it. This would be the end, have I not seen in one of the many long-form articles, and believe that certain information should really be looked into by judges before the sentencing. Something that I have mentioned when talking about searches, right, at the beginning of, beginning of June 2009, when they started searching for debris, the aircraft, and the bodies. Some investigators from BEA, according to this article, have acknowledged privately that they have discovered troubling revelations. One such revelation is that it took nearly 11 hours after the plane's last communication for a search team to be dispatched to Tassel's Point. That's like where a plane's air traffic control station switches between the two continents. Why did it take this long for people to start searching? And also, why is everything in this investigation overseen solely by the French government? I have already told you about reports. They are done by the French agency, right? The French investigative body, BEA. There is no evidence to suggest that the BEA investigation had been compromised. But on the case of this scale, where companies' reputations are at stake, a third party could have stepped in to review the evidence. The judges will base their final decision upon. On top of that, and for this information, you do not have to deep dive on, right? This is like one of the first articles that I have found on this case. The French government, which acquired control of Air France in 1945, currently owns almost 16% of the company. This is about 830 million, okay? Controls three of the company's 15 board seats. So the government owns about 15% on top of this of Airbus's parent company worth about 3.8 billion. As a result, the French state is not only investigating Air France and Airbus, but it's also a significant investor in both of these companies. Although other nations also have a financial stake in their national airlines, a government investigating a company it owns presents a clear conflict of interest. So, we have the government presenting the conflict of interest, and when we have the investigative body there behind the report making this whole investigation biased. The final verdict could mean that the families of the crew members blamed for the accident they could have been more prepared for finally feel the blame is shared with the companies that acted as mentors for their loved ones. It can mean the passengers' families finally have a full picture of what happened on that plane. The investigation into our case is sadly more about putting the price on a human life 
than putting the changes that would prevent it from happening in the future in place. It is to be seen whether the corporate giants will acknowledge guilt, despite the damage this will have to their reputation. It is to be seen will the humanity prevail and will the families get long-desired closure. And that is the case of Air France 447 accident. In two weeks' time, I'm not bringing you a true crime case. I just... I'm gonna watch a reality show. You can put the guesses below or somewhere. Find me on Twitter. I don't know if you will guess what it is, because it's ancient. But I am so traumatized by this case. I mean, you could tell from me crying the beginning of this video, just so shaken. So, so shaken. And just to even think like, oh, like now that I actually understand the needs and grits and nuts and bolts of it, like I can apply it somewhere else. It's just so terrifying. This whole research was so terrifying. I cannot put this into into better words and just hope something happens like for these families to get some sort of justice like just some sort of responsibility and I to, to be fair like do I 100% believe that it will happen no no I think like all of us are leaving this video feeling like my really like you think Airbus and their friends like major companies are going to accept guilt like no this might put them out of operation. They're not going to do that. But some responsibility just must be taken. Some accountability for what had happened. I just... It just always drives me the wrong way. For the families to wait this long, for them to be told basically the same thing over and over again, it's not right. It's not right. It's just not handled well at all like the investigation, the bias, like why are they not bringing a third party to review anything? Truly, truly just disgusting piece of legal case. And everything about this is so terrifying. So let me know if I missed out something, because here I think, yes, a lot of things are getting lost in translation in a way of missing out information, things on whether bodies have been found, whether there's further information with the legal documents, and like, I have checked prior to recording today, I don't see anything further published by the judges and stuff in this case, like, as of the time I'm recording, so I don't know if, when they will review everything, have reviewed everything and make their own decision, but I just hope it's somewhat helpful to these parents and these families reaching some sort of closure. But that is it from me today. And I shall be seeing you with a much lighter topic. It's going to be completely different. I'm not going to say that that reality show is not a crime against our eyes. It was definitely criminal. What had happened, it was definitely criminal, okay? However, I just need a lighter topic. I just need a topic that is going to break from true crime just for a week or two. And then I will summon the strength to research yet another plane crash. So I shall be seeing you guys in two weeks time, you know, regular schedule, regular schedule. It's just, uh, just I need to um, take a train actually to Paris because I work for a French company, which is totally did not make this research even more horrifying. But yes, I take trains to Paris. I don't fly there, mostly because it's also cheaper and I prefer trains, but also because of things like this, okay? Oh God. 
so terrifying, so terrifying, especially for frequent flyers. So, so bone chilling. So, uh, I out. Well, last words of the video, bone chilling. If you do like deep dives, make sure you like this video and subscribe. And I will be seeing you in two weeks' time. Oh my god, I'm shaking again. Again, goosebumps happening all over again, because that is what we do here. There is the grimmest fucking parts of the internet. My out. See you. See you once I'm back from France. From the work trip. Cool. Cool. Wow. <laughs> you have never done that one before. Oh, God.